Welcome to Research Nuggets. This is a podcast about active and published research packaged into a form factor that it's a bit more casual and a lot more accessible to the general public. I'm Eamon Powers. And I'm Jeremy McLaughlin. So thanks for joining us today. All right. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking to my good friend, Dr. Shauna Nefos-Webb. She's an associate professor of counseling at Milligan University in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Um, and we're going to be discussing what I think is near and dear to every person with those three letters after their name, what they had to do for their dissertation. So in the episode that you're about to listen to, we're going to talk to Shauna about how she got the idea, how she uh, worked through uh, some Mm -hmm. of the problems and the discussions that she had with the Mm -hmm. participants in her research, and then what she found. Yeah. And I'm going to correct Jeremy right off the bat because he said, my good friend. And now after we've recorded the episode, I believe Sean is our good friend. Our uh, so good I'm just friend. just that out there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, great conversation with Shauna. Uh, anyone that's interested in, uh, you know, uh, critical race theory or honestly, even empathic design, uh, anything that really just in qualitative design uh, is going to be really interested in this episode. Uh, so we hope you enjoy it. <gasps> and it's live. It's live. So Which welcome one? to... Uh, so welcome to our first episode of Research Nuggets. Uh, I'm Jeremy McLaughlin. Uh, I've got Eamon Powers here and our guest for today, Dr. Shauna Nefos-Webb. Um, so first, why don't we start off with uh, Shauna? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where are you from? What did you, uh, how, did, how did you get into higher education? And uh, yeah, we'll start there. Oh, I hate the question, where are you from? Um, <laughs> I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. My family uh, lives in Pennsylvania. Oh, stop <laughs> it. See? It's already started, right? Because they started. started. My family lives in Phil- close to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I cur- currently reside in Bristol, Tennessee. So I moved to Atlanta. That was a little bit too far south. So I came a little bit back up into the mountains. Right. Where where it's where it's only humid for about 30 days out of the year. Not half the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really nice. So uh, what was the second question? <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into higher ed? We're we're here today to talk about your uh specifically your dissertation. That's what Eamon and I have been drooling over for the last uh, couple of weeks. And I think that's not too weird for people to say that they're actually drooling over a dissertation because <laughs> you spent, you know, decades of your life writing it. So we're um, <laughs> not, not super weird on research nuggets. No, it's research nuggets. <laughs> this is going to be pretty regular. The nugs yeah. are real, you know? Yeah. Where, where <laughs> our only thirst traps are the research that you've done. So yeah. Um, your, your dissertation was, I got here as a student first narratives of African-American athletes at a STEM institution. Um, so tell us about that. Where, where were you when you were writing this? How did you come to this dissertation idea? Eamon and I are both doc students. So, uh, give us a clue on what we should be doing with our lives. Um, well, in my first research class in my doctoral program, my professor said, just, do a research study on something that you enjoy. Um, And I enjoy college athletics. And so I decided that I would um, do my study for that class on um, 
it was a case study on black football players and their experiences. Um, and that led me to think, huh, there's so much here that I don't know. And so I decided to um, continue to explore the topic of um, athletics and individuals who are black who play um, NCAA Division I sports. Um, so there's one of the formative books that I read um, that helped me kind of think through this topic. Um, it was actually by a professor. I don't know if he's still there. Um, I didn't get that one off the shelf, so I can't even read it from here. Yeah, Shauna had um, a legit collection of books on her desk. <laughs> like we were going to be quizzing right. her on this. All so, right. No, hold yes. on one second. Hold on, hold on. We, we need to play like Jeopardy music now, right? Yeah. All right. So what is this? Because we got downgraded to 720p on our video feed. So sorry. <laughs> downgraded. Yeah. All right. So this is my dissertation, actually. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so I grabbed that because it's sitting next to the book that I was just talking about, um, which is I read this book. Um by Billy Hawkins, who is a professor, or at least he was at the time. I don't know if he's still there. Um, he's a professor in kinesiology at UGA. Okay. And this book is called The New Plantation, Black Athletes, College Sports, and the Predominantly White NCAA Institutions. I love how just like straight up not playing around the cover of that book is. You guys couldn't see it, but it was like, you know, like they, they say don't, don't judge a book by its cover except in this circumstance it's it immediately is like yeah no this is what we're going to talk about here yeah we're not playing yeah. around yeah so that i read that book and that informed like okay there is a lot here that i don't know one because i'm a white woman um and two because um i had just not thought about college athletics in that kind of frame before hmm. um so that that led me to be curious and interested in what I don't know. And um, if I don't know it, there are certainly other folks that also don't know it. Maybe we need to know it. So that's the, I guess, the start to wh where I, where I decided to go in terms of my dissertation. So that's, I mean, that's really interesting. You, you kind of started it from this, like, which probably is true of most people when they're going down a like dissertation or any research study, just with some like genuine curiosity and then like, then you reveal the curtain and you're like, oh my goodness, like I've, <laughs> this, this is, this is out of control, right? Like that's, that's yeah. wild. Yeah. And I didn't want to hate my dissertation. Like you hear stories of like people who go through the process of getting a doctorate and mm -hmm. doing a dissertation and then they hate it at the end because yeah. they're just sick of it. And I was like, what could I study that I don't think I'm going to be sick of? Um, and so athletics for sure but also um maybe it's because it's in my blood but issues of injustice and race and racism and all the other isms are important mm -hmm. topics that are kind of consistent threads in mm -hmm. my life and in educational exploration and so i didn't think i would get sick of exploring how we can make this world a little bit more just so what did you find? What, uh, as you were talking to your participants, I think there were six or seven, as I recall, and they were spread across. You had football, men's and women's basketball, track and field. 
I think I, I think I got them all. Um, I think so too. And and this isn't a quiz, right? Because we're like seven years on from when you wrote this thing. So yeah. <laughs> um, but what did you what did you find? What as you were talking to these people, I guess that's the the main thing. Your your research was a narrative inquiry. You were having conversations with these students, which I think is also interesting uh, related to your your current line of work. But we'll get there in a second. Okay. <laughs> what were the stories that they were telling you? What what did you what did you find? Well, yeah. Well, so before we before we get into that, let's let's do one thing. Sorry. Um, let's assume that some people that are listening to this have no idea what a narrative inquiry is. So Ooh. maybe just walk through like why you chose to do that research. Like what does that actually mean? And then yeah, I completely agree with Jeremy's question. We should definitely get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So narrative inquiry grew out of ethnography um, and grew out of the idea of understanding people's experiences. And how do we understand experience? We understand experience through storytelling, through Mm. narratives. Mm -hmm. And so um, currently, you know, I'm a counselor educator and a counselor. And so story is really important as well. Um, so I chose narrative inquiry because of the importance of story, that how do we communicate and frame our lives as we share about who we are with the people in our lives? We tell them stories. We tell stories about what we did that day. We tell stories about who we are. Mm -hmm. We tell stories as they relate to things where we find meaning. Um, and so stories are one of the ways in which we communicate, um, I don't know what we care about. So yeah, I'd say that's like a perfect explanation. Uh, so nailed it. <laughs> so okay, something, right. <laughs> something you had brought up with me uh, a couple of days ago, Sean, it was um, levels of listening. Okay. Um, so you're talking about that in clinical psychology, but how do, well, first, what are these levels of listening and then how do they apply back to doing uh, narrative inquiry? Yeah, I'm talking about levels of listening. I'm just going to say I'm not a counseling psychologist. I'm a counselor educator um, and a counselor. And those are, for those people who are in helping fields, those are two different distinct fields. So I'm not a clinical psychologist. I am a counselor educator, a nationally certified counselor. So just, you know, just for the. I've got to get, I've got to figure out the the titles exactly. I still can't (laughs) get. Uh, the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I, I psychiatrist is a doctor. They prescribe medication. Psychologist is also a doctor, but not a medical doctor. Gotcha. One of, one of them will prescribe you your SSRIs. The other one will just will watch you while you're laying on the couch and talking yes. about your feelings about your family. They will ask you about your mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us Sorry. about these, these levels of listening. No, you're Shots good. Fired. Like, I'm live tweeting all of this right now. Yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be just raining down votes all over the place, you know? Right. <laughs> um, levels of listening. So I teach um, in the program I teach at, I teach one of the basic counseling skills classes. And one of the most important skills is to be able to listen well. Um, and... Listening is not as simple as we think. So I teach about levels of listening. So the top level of listening is your most basic. That's just, we're listening to content. We're listening to what you say. Um, And you can learn a lot from that, but 
there is more than just what you say. So the next level of listening is listening for feeling and how people are feeling in relation to what is happening, what they say. And then the most deep level is listening for meaning. So what does this mean? What you say, how you feel about what you say, what does that do to you? How do you experience it? What meaning do you derive from all these things that you're sharing, the stories that you're telling? And so I was just going to say a adept listener or skilled listener will um, be able to listen on all three levels and help pull out what are the key components of meaning that um, are being associated with the feelings and the experiences people have. So how did you use that as you were interviewing these student athletes? Well, one of the things that I looked at was not just what people said, but how they said it. So listening for things like inflection, tone of voice, word choice, pauses. Um, So a lot of the things that you hear people say happen through their nonverbals as well, how they're holding their body, how they're how they're sitting in relation to where you're sitting, um, what happens when you ask a question that makes them uncomfortable, what are those responses that they're doing. Um, And so listening for those pieces, not just the story, but the how the story was told was also important as part of um, how I analyzed the interviews. Cool. So what did you find? Give Give us the rundown of this 160 some odd pages, I think. Uh, and if you could do it in 30 seconds and only in iambic pentameter, go. I cannot. Okay. All right. Uh, end of the episode. This has been a great job. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is a monster work and there's some really cool stuff that you didn't hear as well with um, putting the students words, um, putting their, their phrases into stanzas. Um mm-hmm. I thought that was that was really cool. So I guess kind of walk us through how you got from, you know, first just meeting these students, talking to them, to trying to build this bigger picture from the stories across all of these athletes that you spoke to. Yeah. So analysis, you know, qualitative research is a lot more intensive in terms of the analysis piece, the data analysis piece, because you can't just punch the numbers into SPSS and get the, the significance, right? You have to spend time like getting to know the, the data, getting to know the words. And so it requires a lot of readings. So um, I went through and I read for themes. I coded kind of themes based off what I read. I went back through and reread and reread and reread and reread, et cetera, um, the interviews to make sure that I was able to um, have an accurate, accurate picture of like the essence of what was being communicated. Um, so that would be um, kind of the, the analysis piece in a very dumbed down <laughs> way <laughs> to say it. Um, and then I used all of the interviews, um, in a couple of different ways. One way was I constructed a, um, a kind of composite narrative of the experience of these athlete athletes and kind of merged together themes, um, into a story of one kind of athlete, 
um, to just communicate um, the story of what it was like to, to be where they are and the identities that they have. Um, so that was one piece of that um, in the kind of demonstration of for the how I'm showing the data. Um, one of the things that I, I found in here that was really interesting in one of those themes, because you broke it apart into um, several different uh, sub-themes, but like there was one that was called We Are the Cleary Alerts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that so my, broke yeah. my heart. Yeah. Yeah, one of the participants actually said that statement, but it was reflected in many of the participants' experiences that um, for those of you who aren't familiar with higher education, the Cleary alerts are these alerts about suspicious things or crime that happens in a specific radius to, to the college campus. And because of where the institution was located, um, there, there was a lot of crime that happened adjacent to the campus that the institution decided to send Cleary alerts about just for students to be safe. Well, you know, the what are the things that we want to know when we're learning about who committed the crime? What do they look like? So those Cleary alerts often de- depicted a, the suspect is a black male, um, approximately this height. Um, and regardless of whether or not the, the participants actually fit all of the identifiers, um, it was clear to them that you know, people responded to them as if they were those suspects. Yeah. And it Um, seemed like in, in reading their accounts that it was magnified even more because these black athletes were as black people, a minority at this institution. Yeah. It's a PWI. So yeah, primarily white institution. And so there's that piece to it, but also athletes who are competing at such a high level are going to just be bigger people than, your, than the rest of the population on campus because of their, all of the work that they do in terms of, you know, their bodies and the work that they have to do as athletes. They are just physically bigger people. Um, and so that, that was certainly a, a piece that they are very aware of how intimidated people were, even decked out in their, you know, their, you know, gear that had the school and the sport on it. Um, they still had experiences where other students would see them coming and cross to the other side of the road yeah. or would, you know, clutch their backpacks because of that. I mean, we have to look at those kind of implicit biases that we carry based on how we consume things like news and media and what the school to prison pipeline tells us and what the legal system and the, um, you know, all of the stuff around what we know about how the systems are broken, which is, I think, why uh, CRT, critical race theory, is a really important connector um, to um, these kinds of topics because it, it does kind of give us a prompting to look at how systems are stacked against certain folks. Um, you know. Yeah, can you dig into that? Because in, in the penultimate page, like right before you get to your, your references, you're talking about how, yeah, you had intended to use this as a lens to examine your own research, but realized you couldn't really remove yourself enough from the picture and your biases, biases from, from that discussion and from that examination. How, how does that all play in? 
especially as a counselor, right? That's that's yeah. one thing to view how your patients are doing things, but then as a researcher to view how your participants, um, how you viewed your participants and how they might react to you within that. Yeah. There's a couple of different things that that prompts into my mind for in terms of this study, what the reason I landed on not digging in as much as I wanted to into critical race theory as a theoretical framework was that critical race theory tells us and asks us to, um, examine and interrogate racism wherever we find it, even if we find it in people who are black. And that's where I really hit the barrier um, in terms of like, I hear this, but also I'm a white woman and I am not going to um, assume or try to figure out if there are instances of internalized oppression that my that the participants are acting out of, um, that is not, you know, I, I just felt like it was not my place because I am not, I don't have that same lived experience. I don't have that same story. And I don't think I'm situated to be able to say that this is, you doing this is internalized racism from you. Gotcha. So how did you take the stories that you, you got from these students and turn them into, to do this structural analysis? I was really taken by these stanzas. So for example, um, one of the anonymized names that, that you had in the dissertation um, was this student, Martin. Uh, I'm guessing he was, he was one of the football players that you had worked with. And one of the stanzas was, I don't want football to define me. I wanted it to be a vehicle. I feel you can't be one dimensional. I'm all about breaking the stereotypes. Those things can't define you and confine you. Where did that come from? It came from him. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Ask stupid um, questions, get stupid answers, no. right? Like Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously he wasn't speaking in this structure. This is something that you mm -hmm. pulled from the conversation yeah. that you were having with them. Yeah. And so this is where that um, tone of voice, word emphasis, word choice analysis piece came in. So those were the, in his, in his telling of his stories, those were the things that he had said with a particular emphasis. Um, and, and so while if you just read the words in the full transcript, that might not stick out to you as particularly emphasized. But when you go back through and read for the structure of the narrative, he was saying them in a way that was like a verbal underline or verbal bolding. And so those were the things I worked to pull out to create, um, in a sense, poems of the story that he was telling me, poems of the pieces where he found the most meaning of related to him telling his story. Gotcha. So Shauna, I'm, I'm interested, like, would you say like they were almost like, um, like when in your communication with it, were they almost like affirmations, like things that, you know, like he was almost like telling himself or like, how did, how did it, 
I guess how did it come off? Because I could almost see, I could, I could see what you're saying. There's like multiple ways you could see these things being mm-hmm. said. If you, and if a person's like affirming something, then mm-hmm. it actually might mean that they're more sensitive to it, right? You know. So, mm-hmm. again, how did how did that turn out? You know, I would really have to give the best answer to that. I would have to go back through and reread the transcripts as I listened to them to see what mm-hmm. was that. Um, because as I recall it, I don't remember them as affirmations. Mm -hmm. I remember them as, um, points of emphasis that he wanted to communicate to people who made assumptions about who he is and what he does. Um, and so it was more about, it was less about, um, you know, him affirming himself or his experience and more about showing others these pieces of who he is. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I thought there was something, I thought there was something really cool, Uh, sticking with Martin here, because I've got a whole bunch of his stuff highlighted. He uh, um, earlier had talked about the, the text that you had compiled, uh, just straight direct quotations were about, um, what it was like with these, these athletes and father figures, um, seeing their coaches as father figures and what it was like getting recruited, being brought up into here and then them turning around and cursing at you on the field during practice. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the stanzas that, that you had put together was I had to realize recruiting is over. They have a job to do. You got to realize it's not personal. You can't blame them. I think that just speaks to the system of college athletics. One of the things that I really, I learned because going through my dissertation process was that the NCAA needs some significant reform in the way that it operates. And what it says it is and what it markets itself as, I think is very different than what it actually is in the lived experiences of many of these athletes. Again, going back to this book by Dr. Hawkins about the new plantation and the way which college athletics continues to perpetuate this idea that the sport of, we'll just use football, the sport of football is for the enjoyment of the white master as opposed to Mm. for the um, advancement of black people into kind of higher levels of economic status or, you know, more justice or a more free society. So your dissertation was 2015. Um, Do you recall vaguely when that, uh, when the new plantation was published? Um, Great question. Let me, let me look. And I I guess what I'm getting to is, okay. So we're, you know, 12 years on from yeah. when that was published, you know, seven years on. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's January 21st when we're recording this is we're, we're still trying to break in 2022, but um, I'd like a refund. <laughs> yeah. It, I'm definitely ready for the <laughs> refund already, but have you seen anything that you brought up through your research or that you saw from that book? Um, have you seen the NCAA try to change any of those things or is it, lip service or are they actually trying to change? That's a great question. Um, So some of the things that 
I have. We're just seen... trying to hit like all of our keywords <laughs> so that then when this does make it onto a pipe, we can we can tag NCAA, we can tag CRT, and we're gonna yeah. get so many different. I'm people gonna get so to much this. hate mail. Yeah. yeah. No, we're just gonna anonymize <laughs> all of it. We're gonna go onto profile um... mail, and it'll be great. <laughs> Um, what you know, there has been a shift in terms of college athletes are able to be to uh, be paid for endorsement now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, previously college athletes, you know, schools were using their likenesses, and athletes were not seeing a penny of that. Right. Um, hey, but so they did get to go to school for free after all. Did you see the right. footnote in my dissertation? <laughs> <laughs> Right. My footnote says I chose on purpose to to talk about these individuals as athletes and not as student athletes because the prioritization is on the athlete part of their role and identity and not on the student part. Right. Even though, again, the title of the dissertation, I got here as a student first. Mm-hmm. They have the capacity to perform um, and succeed at, as in the student identity, um, but what seemed to be prioritized for a number of reasons, not just institutions or NCAA, um, but the, the athlete piece is what seemed to be prioritized in many cases over any other part. Nice. Yeah. Um, so what's next? Um, you you published this in 2015. Uh, you've, you've been teaching, I believe, ever since. Um, before yeah (laughs) yeah, well yeah yeah true um so what are you doing now um what are you hoping to do do you still are you still interested in this field of research and what do you see as a need going forward yeah most of what I've been involved in in research has been more so mentorship of student research um so I mentored a student who was doing a study on Islamophobia um, which was really a wonderful study. Um, it, we studied, we looked at the media that s- people consumed and their level of a- Islamophobia to see if, and their, their major or discipline to see if what they studied, the news they consumed was connected to their level of Islamophobia. It was. <laughs> so... <laughs> You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was one area. I really enjoyed doing that study with a student. Um, Another student and I did a research study on athlete mental health Um, and not revolving around performance. People sometimes falsely equate um, working with athletes and mental health as like sports psychology and performance related concerns. And that was not the study. It was related around things like substance use and abuse, eating concerns, depression, anxiety. Um, so those, we did a study related to that and, you know, what, uh, what kinds of sports led to higher levels of issues on, um, different mental health scales. Um, so those are kind of the, the more, um, recent things that I had done with students. I'm always interested in learning about, um, you know, why people who are, who care about like justice issues care about them, what motivates them to um, care about a particular justice issue. So I've been rolling around in my head around um, kind of the motivation of folks who have 
privileged identities, but care about identities that have been historically marginalized, what it is that makes them want to work for that kind of justice issue related to, you know, race or racism, but there's so many other kind of isms, you know, um, gay rights, disability rights. Um, So that kind of vein related to social justice um, and activism is really important to me. Um, so I think where that, whatever I do next, I think it will be related to issues of, of justice. Cool. So along that, like kind of along that line, I mean, um, any research effort would at least one of the genesis of why Jeremy and I wanted to kind of start doing this is, you know, a lot of times you're almost writing for like an audience of one. And I find that's like really challenging, right? Cause I just think there's incredible work that people are, you know, working away at in the tomes and the the scrolls and you're weeding through and databases. And then ultimately you, you come out of that with a word document that, you know, maybe gets put on another database and, and it's not very accessible, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, to the general masses. Right. So basically, you know, Hey, let's make a podcast to make it slightly more accessible, but you know, what in this study or honestly, any of the subsequent work you've done, it's like, what's one of those things that's maybe it's a through line or something that like, you you've seen right like knowledge to your point earlier knowledge is not just uh, some some uh you know ones and zeros right it's it's something that's it's experiential right you know so like what is what's something from your research that you know people could walk away with and they're like oh wow yeah i mean that's that's i didn't consider that previously you know oh man <laughs> um i don't you know, that's a hard question to answer because um, so many people have, we, we all have bias, we all have um, prejudice, we all have preconceived notions of what is or should be. And so, you know, one of my goals is that people just like, just, just, okay, so what? You have bias. Let's get over that and mm-hmm. stop being, um, so fragile around that that we can't actually move beyond the white tears or the white guilt um, and actually make some change and so yes feel crappy about it that's okay like but don't stay there move forward from that into a place that allows you um, to do, to do the work, to make things better for other people. And so, um, you know, as a white woman, I think I have the opportunity to speak with other white people about, um, you know, our responsibility to address racism, as opposed to always dumping it into the laps of folks who are already being, um, excluded and harmed through racism, Um, As myself, as a benefactor of racism, as a white person, I need to do the work to to change what I've been, you know, the the broken system that I've benefited from. Um, That's the same thing as a hetero cisgender person, like as somebody who's benefited from the systems of oppressing queer and trans folks, I need to do the work um, to help liberate people who have the privilege so that we can live in a society that's more equitable. Hmm. Yeah. That's great. No, thank you for sharing. Seriously. (laughs) Something you said that is that here, I'm going to hit all the buttons. Also the way that academia and publishing 
in academia and that whole like peer reviewed journal racket. Racket. Thank you. <laughs> it's okay. You can say the words. It's fine. Yep. It's that. It's, a, yeah. it's one shade away from an MLM kind of situation here. You know, like yeah, it's, it's not that far away. <laughs> yeah. So that's another thing that like is messed up. Like, yes, quality is important. Having peer review is important. The it it can't just be any old thing thrown out into the ether. Um, yeah. But the whole way in which academic publishing and publishing for publishing sake and publish or perish takes away from the role of education. That's why I'm at a teaching institution because yes, research is important, but also there's such sacred work that happens in the classroom um, that needs to happen. Yeah. But I couldn't, couldn't agree more with you. I mean, it's one of those, um, you know, but like, you have like time, right? I mean, time is ultimately the thing we can't make more of, right? And so it's, uh, are you going to spend the next year working on the the literature review that'll get by, you know, 12 rounds of, that everyone's already read all of those, right? I mean, it's uh, no offense, it's just like, but that's what it is, right? I mean, we, if, if you have done, if you've been in this space, if you've done the studying, you know, I can cite the, the greats from 50 years ago and find 12 people that have cited them since, once we've established that I've read those books, is it not, you know, let's get to like, unfortunately, like, let's get to the point guys. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, you know, you know, moving towards like research and brief as opposed to like these long, um, really intensive works, you know, research and brief can be really helpful. There are those quick go-to guides that are still grounded in empirical research or still grounded mm-hmm. in yeah. like good work. Um, but it's more accessible to folks who don't have the time, you know, we're writing for academia and academia writes for academia, but we also need, as a counselor, I need people to write towards people who are clinicians. And there's a really interesting divide between people who are the academics in the field and people who are the clinicians who, Mm -hmm. I just need you to help me do this better. And I don't need you to do it in a way that is so time consuming that I am I can't be successful in the counseling room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah. So um, I guess in closing, uh, if, if somebody is really interested in uh, your research, we'll, we will of course put a link to your, uh, your dissertation in the show notes, because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, something that, that everybody deserves is to have more people read their dissertations as they, you know, toiled on it for ages and ages. It um, is really fun when when somebody texts and say, "Hey, I saw you cited and blah blah blah." I was like, "Oh, that's fun!" Right. So particularly as somebody who doesn't do a lot of work to get published, that my my focus is in teaching, and so you know, it's it's fun to be like, "Oh yeah, cool." It's also nice to like see your name like when you get the notification from Google Scholar, like, "Oh, hey, somebody somebody did this thing," or on a research gate, like somebody's looking for a copy of your work. It's like, "Really? Can can I, can I have their home address? I want to go visit them." Yeah, let's let's, have let's talk. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, call me now. Let's talk about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> can I offer you some nuggets by any chance? <laughs> right, right. Um, so, in addition to this, um, what else should somebody read if they want to get a little more uh, depth than we've gotten so far in our, our podcast here? Where would you suggest they start? Obviously, the the new plantation 
you said? Yeah. So um, Billy Hawkins wrote uh, The New Plantation. So it's from 2010. And I just, again, that was formative for kind of me and framing up my, um, framing my dissertation. Um, I do think if you're interested in learning about race and racism, um, Dr. Kindy, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, even better is Stamped from the Beginning, which is much longer, but it you want to learn about racism in the United States, that book will teach you. Um, so that would be a recommendation regards to um, race and racism in the United States. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, I don't know, any, <laughs> my, you know, narrative methods for human science is the book that I use by Reisman. Catherine Reisman is the one in terms of methodology is where I started. So narrative methods for human science, sciences, yeah, you read, Catherine Reisman. You read my mind. The next question was, okay, what if we want to learn to research like you've it's, researched? It's still tabbed. <laughs> I still have tabs in that book. Yes. Um, so that would be the place to start. Um, awesome. Fantastic. Know. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing episode one. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but the I'm hate mail thanks. commence. <laughs> no, I think you, I'm I sure. Mean, I, I think this is great. No, I think you're going to be fine. Everything's cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So, thanks for joining us. And uh, we hope uh, everybody will tune in again for episode two, which is still in the works. But, um, yeah, Shauna, thank you for your time. And uh, to everybody listening, thank you for yours as well. Thank you. <laughs> Sitar music. Bring, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> hey, so we want to thank uh, Dr. Shauna Nefesweb for sharing her experience with us, because ultimately we only have so much time on this big, beautiful world and to share time with each other is really important. Um, we look forward to, uh, we hope you enjoyed the experience with us and we hope you'll participate in, and hang out with us again in future research nuggets, if you will. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show and talking with Jeremy and I, uh, we'd be super interested in that. So go ahead and, uh, you know, there's probably a link, I don't know, in the notes somewhere. Yeah. Here. Imagine that, like you could, you could send us some email or something and we wait, what's the E stand for in email? everyone oh yes nice yes so everyone please electronic mail us and uh yeah you can find that link down there in the description so thanks That's for joining right. us thanks see you guys